0: I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive
1: culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet.
0: Welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and joining me as ever is my co-host Clara Cook. How are you, Clara?
1: I'm good, Duncan. How are you?
0: I'm not too bad. And you're joining us today. The topic that we're we're talking about today, we're actually um, throwing back slightly to an episode we recorded recently. We did an episode on the Short Treks, uh, the Short Trek Calypso, talking about how that related to um, Homer's Odyssey. And we mentioned when we were recording that episode that basically uh, the only source that Clara and I had for these Short Trek episodes were these rather sort of rough copies that we could find online where the sound was all distorted and the image was flipped side to side. and and really we were kind of trying to do our best to make out what these shows were all about despite this rather poor uh, quality one way or another. And then, you know hardly any time after we'd recorded that episode what should happen in preparation for Discovery Season 2, Netflix went and finally, months and months after we'd been clamouring for it, released them all uh, for the rest of the world to see. Uh, so finally, we have these kind of pristine images, beautiful sound, and we could watch these episodes in all their glory. So we just thought maybe to kind of celebrate that uh, momentous moment, we would have a little chat just about the Short Treks kind of as a whole, and also sort of what it means for Star Trek to be Engaging with this short form storytelling because, you know, there is something quite distinct about a one-off short story, a short film, which is quite similar to a short story. And it's not something, obviously, that Star Trek has done before. So, Clara, I just thought we'd start. What were your sort of feelings about the short tracks in general? How did you, um, how did you respond to this idea that they were going to be doing this?
1: Yeah, I really like them. I really like short tracks. I think they should do as many as possible. In fact, I think every time there's a gap in a series, like a Star Trek series. I don't just mean Discovery. I mean the new Picard series, the new um, George, Emperor George series, whatever series they do, as many different series as possible. They should have little short treks in between each season. I think they should do as many as possible. The thing is, though, I'm also frustrated by them. <laughs> because okay. I do sometimes find myself frustrated by short films. As the same way I find myself frustrated by short stories. If it's a really good short film... And it's a really good short story that leaves you wanting more, which is kind of the nature of it, I suppose. Even if the story is self-contained, like it, you know, this the short film has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's just a very short beginning, middle, and end. Even if it's a self-contained finished story, I still always want more. But that's just me. I think I just I I enjoy long stories.
0: I don't know, you see, I quite I quite appreciate a good short story, like a well crafted short story. I mean, although as I say, short films do exist. I mean we can talk about our own you know, I've had Quite a lot of experiences one way or another with short films. But I mean, then they're, they're not a very, they're not a hugely popular kind of artistic medium in the sense that people don't consume them in great numbers. I guess people probably are more familiar with short stories because we do, uh, consume them more. You know, you can buy published, uh, books of short stories. Magazines, of course, used to, uh, I mean, they still do to some extent, but you, you, you know, there are other forms for kind of absorbing short stories. And certainly in the history of science fiction, uh, short fiction has, played an important role in that I quite like a good short story I, th- I think if it's well crafted if it's kind of a satisfying piece in its own right there's something quite appealing about knowing that that's that's the thing and it kind of you know it captures something and it sort of leaves you with that moment almost but I'm interested kind of going into these short tracks because obviously you know we've we we'd never seen before uh, and now we have seen these first four of them this is kind of first mini season, I guess, of short treks where they did go with that. But what were your kind of expectations going into it? You know, when they announced, okay, we're going to have this thing to bridge the gap between season one and season two of Discovery, we're going to have these, whatever they are, 15 minute, some of them, I think, I think Calypso is about 18 or 19 minutes, but, you know, basically sort of 15 minute episodes, kind of mini episodes. What were you sort of expecting that they would look like? What were your kind of expectations of what a short trek might be?
1: I mean, I thought it would be a little bit like the, short films that they had for Battlestar Galactica that they put online. You know, there's sort of little ones they released. I think they released them on YouTube initially. I thought they were going to be a bit like that. Like they would be sort of background to the characters. They might show you uh, a scenario that might've been referred to in the series, but not actually explicitly shown like a, like, you know, maybe Culber and Stamets meeting, um, well, I'm talking about opera or something. Do you know what I mean? Like something like that, because I think traditionally that's what sort of established sci-fi franchises have done with short films is it's like something to develop an already established character, something to show like a edited scene or something, you know, like a missing scene. So I was actually pleasantly surprised that they were stories in their own right. And I think that's a better way to go. I think that's a better thing to do.
0: They they kind of vary as well, because I'd say, I mean, the, the first one, Runaway, is very much, you know, it's basically kind of a bottle show. I mean, I think that another way of looking at this is obviously... They decided to do these short treks. You, you, we know the reasons they decided to do them. They wanted people not to cancel their CBS All Access subscriptions. They wanted something to kind of... They wanted to be able to drip feed a little bit of Star Trek, uh, but to do it quite cheaply. I mean, they they only ever s- sort of feature one or two kind of lead actors. I, I mean, sometimes they have a, a reasonable number of guest actors, like the Harry Mudd one actually has quite a lot of, you know, characters in, in smaller roles in a sense. But I mean... Something like Runa- Runaway was kind of what I was expecting, I suppose, in that it's basically a bottle show. Uh, there's no new sets involved. There's only two new actors involved and then Mary Wiseman, and it's kind of, you know, you can see that's cheap to produce. They're using existing sets, they're using one of their existing cast, plus a couple of guest actors, and it's a kind of fairly, it's a pretty talky episode, I suppose. It's kind of, uh, it's basically like a little character story. It's quite a small story, I suppose, and that was sort of what I was expecting. The other ones, I have to say, in some ways, I mean, although the, the Saru episode, Brightest Star, yes, it was sort of filling in backstory, and we kind of knew it was going to fill in that backstory, it's also felt quite cinematic and quite, kind of um it didn't feel like a little cheap kind of knockoff. do you know what i mean what 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 the danger is that doing this that this might feel like you know calypso i think was was kind of well we we both talked about how much we loved that episode i know some people hate it but you, you know personally i i think that's by far the most ambitious of these four stories but in some ways all of them maybe apart from runaway and this is not to take away from runaway i enjoyed it i mean when that first came out i i thought it was great um but I think they were surprisingly ambitious with what they decided to do with this format and every writer approached it quite differently and did something quite different with it as well.
1: Yeah, I think they're all quite different. I like I liked how they were all quite different. I think if they'd all been written by the same person then it would have be been more like deleted scenes, you know, scenes that they wanted to include in the series and they didn't rather than independent self-contained little films in their own right. I do feel that Runaway was probably the weakest of the bunch actually I think that although I did like it I'm not saying I didn't like it. I enjoyed all all four of them but I do think it was the weakest of the bunch Uh and interestingly when I watched these four films with someone who doesn't actually know Star Trek all that well that was their least favorite and partly because they were like I don't know what the lithium crystals are like uh, what, what, what are they talking about? And how is, who is this person? And how are they, how, how can they do this? And why, you know, how does the food come out of those little machines? And I was like, oh, that's a replicator, dilithium crystals, power warp engines, blah, blah, blah. I had to explain quite a lot. Whereas they got, so they got the Saru story because they kind of understood the idea of a society which is cloistered and inward looking and being different and trying to look beyond that and exploring beyond that. They didn't need to be told anything about Calypso because we don't know anything about Calypso, even as Star Trek fans, because we're introduced to these two new characters completely in this 15 minutes. And then they also enjoyed the one with Harry Mudd because it maybe had slightly more mainstream comedy rather than, you know, as in like had sort of slapstick and sort of ironic humor which is stuff that you also find in mainstream television. So I think they kind of enjoyed it that that way as well. I I guess it depends on whether or not they're making these short treks for fans. Is it fan service? Or is it also to be little pieces of art, you know? And I felt like Calypso was like a little piece of art rather than just a short Star Trek um, film to pay lip service to the fans, if that makes sense. Whereas I feel... Like Runaway maybe required a bit too much explanation for 15 minutes.
0: Right, that's interesting. I mean, to me, Runaway is the one that was the most kind of what I was expecting, insofar as it's kind of cheap and simple and kind of straightforward. It's kind of what I imagined we'd be getting, in a sense. It's the closest, in a way, to the kind of short films that I... I don't know, that I sort of feel familiar with. I mean, I have quite a lot of experience with short films because um, I've mentioned before on this podcast, I think, I originally trained as an actor. And when I first uh, sort of finished my training as an actor, one of the things that we were encouraged to do was to go and do a load of mainly student films, mainly students who make, I mean, obviously people, not just students who make short films but you know if you're kind of looking for experience of working on screen or whatever that's an easy way to do it you don't get any money uh but they usually buy you lunch uh, and you get to you you know kind of see what these students are working on and often they're pretty bad to be honest but they're also very much focused on like the students have no budget to speak of really kind of what can they write and shoot in a few days uh in a way that's kind of affordable and manageable and so on so in 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 a way runaway kind of reminded me of that you know you get like a couple of actors together you kind of maybe get a set or two and you, you try and work out an interesting story you know because i guess for anyone most people make a short film the the budget is a real limiting factor the kind of resources are a limiting factor because a short film in itself unlike a feature film or whatever is not ever really going to rake in that much money. But I was kind of quite impressed in terms of the sort of showing the money and the kind of production side of it by the the other three of them. I didn't. I mean, you said you thought Runaway was the least successful. For me, The Escape Artist, I it just didn't work for me at all. But at the same time, it looked good. It looked, you know, it didn't look cheap. It looked it looked like a kind of um, you know decent bit of Star Trek. I, I didn't happen to particularly. Appreciate it as a, as a story, but, um, but I, I thought it looked great. So, so I was kind of, um, pleasantly surprised in a way by how ambitious they were. Certainly by, say, Calypso, how ambitious that was as a story. Brightest star, as I say, how ambitious that was kind of visually. I mean, I, I feel like they kind of did a lot more with these than they might have done. I, I think another way of looking at it is they could have got, they could have done four runaways and everyone would have been like, yeah, okay, that was nice. You know, that kind of tidied us over, but they actually chose to go, do, you know, go a bit more boldly to do something a bit more than, than they needed to just to kind of get people to pay that subscription or whatever. And I suppose when you were saying, who are these for? Are they for the fans or whatever? I think they must be for the fans because they're the fans that they are designed, these short tracks, to catch the attention of the people who only subscribe to CBS All Access in order to watch Star Trek and aren't watching whatever else is on that platform uh, and if they're Star Trek they're not going to want to miss it so it's kind of you know there's a kind of cynical element to it there in some ways um, it's a little bit like that idea of you know sort of merchandising oh we'll put this out in some with a new packaging or whatever and they'll buy it again or we'll put out this thing or we'll put out you know okay this time we're going to uh, do the DVD with the deleted scenes as well or do you know what I mean whatever it is there's a kind of element of like um, how can we not lose the attention of these people when we've got this big gap between seasons? But at the same time, I think they did a lot more with it than they needed to. Do you know what I mean? They, did, they didn't just go for the kind of lowest common denominator or the kind of easiest option. They actually uh, tried to do something more interesting. At least, certainly for me, with with at least two of them. I mean, with Calypso and Bright Star, I think they, they they really tried to do more. The other two for me felt... A bit less ambitious in some ways, but you, you know, it's only a fifteen-minute film. It's—I mean, what are we expecting? In a way, you know, we're—we're—it's kind of—it's bonus content. I suppose that's the thing—is it's not—it's not part of the season as a whole. This is kind of bonus content. This is sort of a little extra, you know.
1: I think that they actually did quite complicated things with the short tracks, which you're right—they didn't have to do. I think they were ambitious, and I—I don't, I don't just mean in terms of, like, the characters and the themes and that kind of thing. But I think in terms of the writing and I also think in terms of the filming, I think with The Brightest Star, if you watch it quite carefully, it's filmed quite differently than the other three short tracks. And there's times where the camera is almost like... uh, It's not a handheld camera, but or it could be, but it sort of looks like a handheld camera. Like when they're sort of focusing close up on Saru's face and the faces of his family... And the way it's filmed with, like, the landscape, outdoors, the sun, the sort of nature around it, it it is like a little, I don't know, it's like a little beautiful cinematic experience. I was really struck by how that was filmed, more than the other ones. But I think Calypso is some of the most ambitious storytelling out of the four, because they're introducing you to, well, the writer's introducing you to a scenario that you know nothing about, two characters you know nothing about, and he has to be able to get you to care about these characters, to be invested in these characters in a relatively short space of time. If you already know the character, then the writer has an advantage there because they don't have to explain the character to you in 15 minutes. I guess in Runaway, what something that they did was they gave background to Tilly and her relationship with her family very quickly and very succinctly and cleverly with a tiny, tiny scene and a few lines of dialogue. That's the precious of a short film is that you've got to set the scene. You've got to invoke an emotional reaction in the audience. You've got to explain a character or explain a character's motivations. You've got to um, sort of present some themes, have a little storyline all in a very short period of time. And that requires good writing good production values, but also interesting cinematography. And I think they did that. And
0: and it's interesting also how they kind of get that sense of of it not being too small a story. I mean, you know, whether that's to do with the pacing or, I mean, Mm. in Calypso, for example it gets around the fact i mean runaway feels like it's a like a handful of quite small scenes and it takes place over a pretty short period of time calypso obviously the story takes place over what weeks or months or whatever they have that kind of montage scene which is quite an effective sort of shorthand way of of showing time passing or whatever but they kind of managed to get a lot in i feel like actually it's quite in some ways it it doesn't feel frenetic but it's paced quite quickly you know kind of it moves along at a bit of a clip that story the brightest star one of the things that was nice about it and i think one of the things that made it feel more cinematic in a way is the pace is quite gentle and although it's only a short film it doesn't feel rushed at all it feels quite you know maybe it's partly because it's the slower pace of life on that planet which is this kind of you know pre-warp society it it feels like the pacing is kind of is gentler, is kind of slower, and the story kind of takes its own time. It's quite a personal story. It's quite a sort of individual story. It's not a very kind of sci-fi story in some ways. Uh, and I, th- I think that sort of worked in a way. And I suppose that's one of the challenges when you're working with quite a limited amount of time is insofar as, I mean, obviously, you know, throughout the course of, of, of Star Trek pacing varies, you know, there are some episodes that seem much, much more frenetic and much more fast paced than others. But at the same time, we know that, say, a, a typical episode, certainly, say, from, like, Next Gen through to Enterprise or whatever, there's a certain structure, you know, there are certain kind of... I mean, partly because of the ad system, you know, you had this kind of five-act structure. You'd have a teaser and five acts, and then... So whatever that is, every however many minutes or how many pages, you have a, you, you know, a kind of fade to black or whatever, and ideally some kind of cliffhanger or whatever. So there's a kind of... To some degree, the pacing of the episode is set by the format. Do you know what I mean? Insofar as, like... You know, there have to be certain moments of kind of high attention and it's it's quite constrained. There is a kind of narrative formula there. I think with these episodes, other than the fact that they all have to be sort of roughly 15 or so minutes long, there doesn't seem to be any, there are no similar constraints. And of course, one of the things that we saw with Discovery was because it was on a streaming service and not on you know, not on broadcast TV, is the episodes could be very different in terms of length, which obviously affects the pacing. I mean, that episode, I can't remember which, the the really short Mirror Universe episode in the second half of the first season of Discovery, there's there's one that comes in at like 30 something, you, you know, well under 40 minutes. And it felt really fast paced, I think, and it did come in short and you know you know, and that kind of worked for that episode. But obviously previously with Star Trek it would always have to hit, you know, whatever it was, 44 minutes for most of Next Gen, DS9, Voyager, etc. Um, Enterprise, I think it kind of dropped down to 42. And you and you do see that kind of shift throughout the history of Star Trek. I mean, maybe accepting the animated series, which we could talk about a little bit as a kind of separate case, but in terms of live action Star Trek getting shorter and shorter and shorter. So with the original series, you've got like 50 minutes or whatever it is. And some of those episodes, when I go back and watch them now, they almost feel like a little film. Do you know what I mean? And the pacing can be a bit slower. There can be a little bit more time to kind of dwell on the kind of personal dynamics and so on. They don't necessarily feel so rushed. By the time you get to next gen DS9 Voyager, it feels like the kind of pace picks up. I feel like even though it's only like you know, whatever, five or six minutes difference. You kind of feel it, you notice it. There's a kind of a different shape to that somehow. Enterprise, again, you know, shaving off a couple of more minutes. I can't help feeling that's one of the reasons Enterprise sometimes feels a a little bit less rich somehow than some of those previous series. Do you know what I mean? Some of the kind of criticisms that people have about that show, uh, I'm not saying they're all down to the ever so slightly reduced running time, but at the same time, I think the fact that the running time is even less, it sort of makes it seem less and less and less... Significant somehow, but then by the time you get to discovery, it's completely. The running time is almost, you know, it's it's totally up in the air. It's just whatever it takes to tell this story, whether it's you know, thirty seven minutes or you know, fifty two minutes or, or or whatever it is, which is a very different kind of situation to be in, and as a viewer, is quite bewildering in some ways because you're not quite sure, you know, traditionally with Star Trek. Most Star Trek, it's about forty-five minutes. You know, if you pop one on, you know roughly when you're going to finish watching it. Uh, now that's all kind of up in the air.
1: Yeah, I think Star Trek works better when it's given more time, and maybe that's just my personal feeling about about how to tell stories. But I think it works better when it's given more time. I think sometimes, sometimes some of the best storylines are found in like the two part, the two parters. Like sometimes even sometimes like the three parters. And I think you noticed when the actual episode's shorter and the story is like cut or edited or written to be shorter and fit a shorter time period, I think it is noticeable. I mean, there is something about having exhilarating or exciting action, you know, a fast pace, especially if you're trying to write a witty script or make something funny. But sometimes I think it, it does feel like they're kind of rushing through a storyline so they can resolve it by that particular time i don't think that's really what we want from star trek really i mean i know people watch it for the space battles and the fun and stuff but a lot of people watch it also for the ideas and it's awfully hard sometimes to explore an idea in a very short period of time does that make sense
0: absolutely although it's interesting i mean i would say often the two-parters i'm not saying i don't like a good two-parter but i feel like generally they're not the best Star Treks, if you know what I mean. Like, you'd think they would be because they're the kind of bigger ones. Quite often, I feel like, I'm particularly thinking of, say, next-gen two-parts, sometimes Voyager as well. Sometimes they feel a bit padded. Sometimes you feel like there's slightly more, like there's enough plot for one and a half episodes. But is there really enough there for two? And even, you know, going back to The Menagerie, I mean, that's an episode... And obviously that's a weird case because they're basically, again, it's a kind of crass commercial thing. You know, how do we, we can get two uh, episodes out of this footage that we already shot and can't use. And so half of it's already kind of in the can anyway. To me, watching that, it feels like glacial, the pace, you know, partly because you're watching something you've already seen in a different context anyway, if you've seen The Cage. Um, but I just... For me, the pacing of that episode just doesn't really work because it's kind of trying to do two things at once. And sometimes I think that the the two-parters can feel a little bit like that, like they maybe they start off quite well and then they kind of run out of steam halfway through the second half. But it's interesting, the, the ones that I think often work better are the ones where they're not really a two-part story, there's kind of more of a shift. So I'm thinking of something like Chain of Command. I mean, Chain of Command Part 1 and Chain of Command Part 2 are totally different. You know, all the torture stuff, all the stuff that we sort of think of as Chain of Command is in Part 2. That all happens after the end of Part 1. And as a result, they're all... You know, yes, they called them Chain of Command Part 1 and 2, but if that were DS9, they would give them different names and you would not... You you know, you'd know that they were a two-parter, but at the same time, it would kind of emphasise the fact that they're they're two unequal parts of... A story, and in some ways, I think maybe that for me is a little bit more effective. I mean, you get that even say when you get to the three-part episodes. Say, you know, it started in Deep Space Nine with the um, the Circle trilogy, and then which I guess really took off in Enterprise. And I think often those three-part episodes, in some ways, for me, work better than the two-parters often because they there's enough from there for a story to really breathe, and also for a bit of variety. You know, the three parts are not all kind of equal. Uh, often. Maybe two of them are more closely connected and one of them is, is more of the setup or, you you know, they kind of go in in an interesting direction or an enterprise, for example, sometimes they have quite, I'm thinking, say the augment trilogy, they have quite distinct, they, they have a shape within each individual episode as much as they're all parts of a kind of almost more like a trilogy rather than one episode. But I think it's kind of interesting, you know, what does it do to the storytelling to have that much? extra space you know not only to have kind of double the, the pages to fill but actually to have triple the pages to fill and how is that different from or, or you know when you get to ds9 you know you get that six-part storyline at the start of the sixth season for example and kind of the challenges of that and the pleasures of that and how much is that about, you know, it's basically like a miniseries. I mean, that is kind of, you know, what you would expect from a, a miniseries with a beginning and an end and a shape to it that that plays out over a series of weeks. And obviously people talk a lot about DS9 and serialisation from week to week and obviously that's a big element of the seasons going forward. But there are also these kind of clutches of episodes. Like there you have that six-episode uh story, which I think is you know, I've said this before, is one of my favourite kind of stretches of of Star Trek episodes. I think works fantastically well, but it partly works because it is a longer kind of thing. It is more like a novel. I mean, I suppose that's one of the things we're talking about, like short films, short stories, and novels and movies and so on. This is kind of one of the... The areas you, you know. What do you what do you get in a longer form that you don't get in a shorter form? What do you get in a shorter form that you don't get in a longer film, form? I mean, arguably, if you take a say an adaptation of a popular novel, often you know you might get a novel that's adapted into um, a film, or equally might be adapted into a mini series. I'm thinking particularly like a sort of period drama or something like that. We might get here when you do it as a mini series and you get more episodes and you get sort of week by week, you get to go a lot deeper. Um, I mean, my partner and I recently were watching. I don't know how this came about, we ended up watching about three or four different adaptations of Jane Austen's Emma. And the, the the ones where it was a series of episodes on TV, like three or four or five episodes, felt so much truer to the novel and to the kind of spirit of the novel and so on. And the ones where they were attempting to fit that novel into the kind of shape of a of a film which is something you absorb in one sitting um and in some ways it's kind of counterintuitive you might think that short films like a short story or whatever but i think because of the amount of time it takes to read a story versus how long it takes to to watch a film in some ways a short story has more in common with a film because the the quality of a short story is that you can read it in one sitting and i think part of the pleasure maybe of a short story as compared to a novel is exactly the fact that it's a kind of one shot Thing. Do you know what I mean? And maybe, you know, it goes back to kind of the like old oral traditions or like being read a story at bedtime or whatever. It's the idea of a story that kind of has a beginning, a middle end, and an end. It's all there in one thing. Uh, and it's quite sort of. Digestible as, as, as one thing, as opposed to a novel where, you know, you can read a chapter a night, but, but that's more like a kind of serialized storyline. Obviously, that's not the case, you know, with a 45 minute Star Trek. That's one thing you can absorb it. Even a two hour Star Trek film, that's one thing you can absorb it. But I just sort of wonder whether the, you know, the, the length of something like this, it does sort of inform how we see it, not just while we're watching it, but kind of how we. I don't know, sort of conceptualise that story afterwards, what what we think it means somehow. How, how much of a wholeness does it have within itself? Or how much is it part of something else? Because obviously with Star Trek, there's always this kind of question, you know, is, is each episode self-contained? Is it episodic? Does everything reset each time? Or is there a kind of ongoing, you know, how much is the pleasure of it about the kind of ongoing stuff, the ongoing relationships, the ongoing kind of narrative, if there is a kind of serialised narrative? And so I mean, on.
1: some of it is deceptive because some of the long, long classic novels that we think about, like anything written by Dickens, to a certain extent, some of the stuff written by like Elizabeth Gaskell, stuff like that like or even like Wilkie Collins, was actually originally serialized. I mean if we think about sort of like Sherlock Holmes, I mean a lot of the Sherlock Holmes adaptations now are movies, but actually Sherlock Holmes originally was published in a magazine in the Strand Magazine. So actually, these big, long stories that we think of as long were actually delivered to the audience. Not all novels, obviously, but some of them were delivered in short bite-sized chunks. A little bit like, if you think about it, something like EastEnders, like a Victorian version of EastEnders. A couple of years ago, they didn't used to do this, but a couple of years ago, a new type of period drama came on television and it was a a televised adaptation of dickens novel bleak house and i remember it being quite a big deal at the time because the bbc decided to air it every single day a new episode every single day for 20 minutes and they did this as a experiment to see if people would actually enjoy or engage with a televised period drama this way and I remember that people... Basically a soap, like
0: opera. A soap opera. Yeah, people at the time... Treat, treating it like or, or like, a, like one of those, what do you call them, you know, those kind of... Um, is that what they call called? Those kind of um, quite over-the-top soap... Do you, do you know what I mean? Like kind Because of, that's what... Inarguably, that's what Bleak House is like. It's quite sort of over-the-top and a bit. It's quite intense. Do you know what I mean? It's that sort of... Um, I, I mean, not like a soap opera, just like EastEnders, but I mean that kind of quite heightened sort of ongoing serialised storyline.
1: Well, at the time, reviewers... Did actually liken it to EastEnders. I mean, they didn't liken, like, the writing to EastEnders. Obviously, it's writers interpreting Dickens. And although I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to criticize people who write EastEnders because, you know, there's lots of storylines and multiple characters and everything. It's probably quite challenging. But they said the way it was delivered, you know, and, and it was incredibly popular. They had big audiences tuning in each night to watch 20 minutes of Bleak House. And then they did it again with, I can't remember what other one they did it with, but they did it with another period drama. I think it might have been Little Dora. And of course, now you can watch these as a box set. You can go on, I don't know, Netflix or you can, wherever it is, or you can stream it. Um, with one episode after another, and you can just basically binge watch it. So part of it is the way that we're watching television has changed as well. You know, we're not watching television uh, week to week, like we might have used to watch Star Trek. We're now watching it, you know, all in one go. Although obviously Discovery is being released week to week. It, not everything on Netflix is released that way. A lot of stuff is released as just one big season. You know, all the episodes there ready for you to watch immediately and then whatever streaming service it is amazon does this as well now while you're while you're finishing the episode the next one is like loading ready to go you know and it will start almost immediately afterwards so actually are we watching star trek are we watching 45 minute episodes are we watching star trek like we used to or are we watching four episodes of voyager in a row and does
0: that kind of change our experience of star trek and and is is four episodes of like an hour's 3 hours worth of voyager in a row yeah you're you're right like how is that different from watching say an original series movie that's that's 2 hours long and what are the kind of because obviously the difference is that is the shaping of it i mean uh, uh, the star trek movies you know do sort of follow a kind of cinematic structure you know they they're kind of paced to kind of fit with that running time I mean, it's interesting. People often say insurrection feels like a two part next gen episode. Yes, I can see why they say that. But at the same time, it's, it's certainly not, it's not structured in terms of pacing and so on. It's not structured like a two part episode. It's, it's structured like a film for, you know, better or worse. It's structured like a kind of, you know, traditional sort of three act Hollywood movie or whatever. It's interesting. You were talking about Sherlock Holmes earlier because Sherlock Holmes is an example of we probably think of Sherlock Holmes through uh films primarily even say the recent sherlock series you know with benedict cumberbatch i mean yeah that was a series but quite strikingly for the bbc they they were three part series you know each season was three episodes but they were each yeah they were quite long long or something they were they they were were basically they were basically films so you basically get a series of films each time but of course sherlock holmes originally most of them were short stories and some of them are pretty short stories where you know really not a huge amount you know there's a mystery but not that much action, not all that much plot, really. There's the, you, you know, there's the kind of, the, the core of it is sort of solving the mystery. Some of them, literally, Sherlock Holmes never even leaves his rooms, I don't think, to, to solve the mystery. And so there is that sort of question of like, what do we, I mean, with someone like Conan Doyle, uh, you know, he's writing Sherlock Holmes novels, and he's also writing Sherlock Holmes short stories, and they're, accomplishing quite different things the story the stories might be more of a kind of little puzzle and the novel might have a lot more plot and a bit more action and a bit more you know a little bit like in the way that you might say okay so when star trek makes the move to the cinema uh, you get more kind of action spectacle you get more of that kind of three-act structure you get more of this kind of you, you know you get different kind of generic expectations that go along with that both that longer running time and, of course, the money and the expectations and so on. But but a lot of it is about kind of structuring things for different lengths. And what does that kind of look like to structure a story to run for 120 pages, as opposed to a story for, you know, one of these short treks to run for sort of, you know, 15 or, you know, maybe 20 at the most pages. What are you kind of, I guess, what are the kind of shapes of that? And what do you want to accomplish with it? I mean, what are the things that you can accomplish with a, Shorter form that you almost can't with a longer form. I mean, arguably something like The Escape Artist, as much as I said, I didn't love, I didn't love The Escape Artist particularly, but I'm glad it wasn't a 45 minute episode. I mean, (laughs) because what I didn't like about it was I felt even for 15 minutes, it was flimsy. Do you know what I mean? It felt like, to me, it felt like, more so than the other three the other three i felt like there was sort of something there the escape artist really i liked the the reveal at the end i thought was was good it it worked well but it just felt like the majority of that was just setting up this kind of reveal and the the humor along the way didn't really work for me there was only one joke that actually made me laugh Um, but I, i didn't really feel it was worth sitting through 15 minutes of harry mudd kind of just saying the same old rubbish over and over again which didn't particularly amuse me just to get to the point at the end where you see all those muds and you get the kind of reveal and then you get the reveal of mud on the ship you know which i did like i did like the reveals but i didn't think 15 minutes is a bit long for a joke that's basically a sketch to me do you know what i mean like um you know a tv sketch that lasts three or four minutes maybe. So I suppose that's that sort of question. What do the different, what do different lengths of time and different lengths in terms of pages and so on lend themselves to? What kind of storytelling can you do with those different formats and those different shapes?
1: Well, it's interesting you should say that because traditionally comedy is shorter than drama, isn't it? Mm, I mean, most comedy series are like 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Like if you think of Friends or Frasier, uh, I'm trying to think of... Like even something like Flight of the Conchords. I'm trying to think of all like the comedy shows that I've ever seen, (laughs) but they're almost always
0: quite short. Comedy traditionally fits in like a doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely.
1: And maybe that's because it is kind of hard to maintain that level of comedy writing for a long period of time. Is it maybe that perhaps maybe people don't find things continually funny again and again, or is it maybe that people don't, Maybe they don't have a sense of humour that lasts for like a whole film. I have to say, I can't think of that many feature films that I've found continually hilarious all the way through. And I think with the Harry Mudd episode, The Escape Artist, there were bits of it that I did find very humorous. Like, for instance, the fact that this alien bounty hunter forgot where she parked her ship and I, th- I think that's because I think that's actually something that probably could happen. Um, but you don't really ever see that much in Star Trek is people making mistakes or accidents, like stupid mistakes or accidents. Like I parked my ship somewhere, it's cloaked, and I have no idea where it is. And that seems sort of like Guardians of the Galaxy type thing, you know. And then there was, there was that moment in the Orion ship where he was talking to his captor. And he was sort of talking about how great he'd look in a cape. And the captor sort of stop, you know, the Orion sort of slave trader stops and sort of thinks and thinks, and he's like, "I would look good in a cape," you know. That, I thought that was kind of funny, and the fact that the video camera in the Orion ship is basically a regular human video camera, but just sort of painted like the same colour as the ship. It's not even a proper prop; <laughs> it just looks like a video camera that you'd see like in a Seven <laughs> Eleven in twenty first century America. So there was some stuff that was uh, funny, but I think it'd be very hard to maintain
0: that longer. Like you said, it'd be hard to maintain that for a whole episode. See, for me, it was a struggle to maintain it for 15 minutes. <laughs> but it's interesting. I mean, I was thinking when you were talking about like these half hour comedies and you were saying like Cheers or f- Friends or, or whatever, the, the thing that immediately came to mind for me is Forty Towers, because obviously, you know, everyone sort of says, oh, Towers is the best ever sort of half hour comedy. But famously, with Forty Towers, they deliberately wrote too much script. So they wrote enough script for like, I don't know, 37 minutes or something. And then they played it. They had to act it fast basically and the idea was that it would you know partly because it's quite frenetic you think of basil 40 in particular very kind of um over the top kind of frenetic character but they deliberately played 40 towers at a faster than normal pace by um by writing more scripts than they needed in a sense and I, i suppose maybe what i felt with the escape artist was it just to me it didn't really feel like there was enough there somehow whereas like when we were talking about calypso i felt like there was sort of stuff crammed into every second of that film like it really made the most of uh those 18 minutes or whatever it is the escape artist maybe it's partly the fact there's all the repetition in it which i get you know why that's there and so on but for me it just it 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 felt like it just sort of waffled along a bit until it got to the to the end but also you know i mean comedy is is quite subjective it's quite difficult and i'm not a huge fan of, of harry mard as a character Anyway, so, like, those things that you pointed out, yeah. I mean... I but they know. aren't they, they
1: aren't Harry Mudd, though. I guess the, the, hu- oh, no, the humour in
0: it, like, per- personally for me, the humour didn't, you know, land uh, for that episode. But I know that for a lot of people it did. Well what I'm describing isn't um, Harry
1: Mudd. Like, I didn't you know, necessarily find him funny. What I found funny was, like, the two... Like, the scenario. Like, the, the, the fact that, you know... So, I would say I've at that sort of, I don't know, dry kind of... Sort of silly, kind of ironic humor, I do find quite funny. But Harry Mudd himself, I don't find him that humorous. I find Harry Mudd kind of menacing, actually. <laughs>
0: Well, and it's interesting it's when scary. you say about comedy, because obviously, you know, we're, we're, we're going to see as well the Lower Decks series. I mean, aside from these more short tracks, we're going to get Lower Decks, which is going to be like a half hour comedy series, I think. Um, And is an animated series. And of course, we had an animated series before, which was, you know, kind of aimed at kids. They were like 22 minutes or something, weren't they, those episodes? I mean, they were really, you know, short. But, at the same time, is really the sort of uh the benchmark or the proof in a sense that you can tell Star Trek stories in a shorter time frame because I mean a lot of those episodes, yes, this was a show that was kind of kind of aimed at children, although was it or wasn't it because often a lot of those episodes they 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 seemed not all that different from kind of conventional Star Trek episodes, and in terms of plot, often they would get through you know what seemed like a kind of a whole Star Trek episode, maybe a slightly condensed one in the space of, what, about 22 minutes, I think. Uh, I mean, if you think of something like Yesteryear, everyone's favourite episode of the animated series, it's it's slightly condensed in terms of the way it tells its narrative, but it very much has the feel of a Star Trek episode. It has the kind of shape of a Star Trek episode. And that's one of the reasons that people love that show so much.
1: Yeah, so the animated tracks are a bit different, aren't they? They're not short films. So They're not short they're films. Like I mean, they're, they're
0: episodes. They yeah. are episodes. You're right. Yeah. And they're part of a, of a whole and there's a kind of continuity between them. I mean, not continuity as we understand it, but there's a, a design continuity and so on between them. But at the same time, they are kind of proving that Star Trek, which up till that point was this kind of 50 plus minute storytelling form could be condensed. And to some extent, you could retain some of, you know, what Star Trek felt like even in that different form.
1: See, I, I would argue that you didn't. <laughs> that they didn't. <laughs> All
0: right. We I won't mean, tell I would you say, said that. I mean,
1: I would say that they're a completely different type of Star Trek, I suppose. I don't think it's in any way sort of cohesive with what I would imagine like original series storytelling. I guess the thing is that when you're telling a mini episode, not a short track, which I would say is a short film, a mini episode, the way you write is different. You know, you've got to set the scene, you've got to tell the story, you know, it's almost like there's a little narrative that follows all the way through. Whereas the short tracks I'm not saying there isn't a narrative, like for Runaway there was a narrative, obviously. But for some of it some of the short tracks it felt almost like a mood. There wasn't much of a narrative mm. to the escape artist, was there? I mean there wasn't much of a storyline. It was just mud and different things. This, this in the was scenarios. my
0: issue with that with that episode, yeah. I mean, is it, it felt flimsy. It felt like there was less than even the fifteen minutes there somewhere, somehow. And you could say that about a short story. I mean, typically short stories, they often are about sort of capturing a moment rather than a plot, if you know what I mean. They are more about the kind of intricacies of that, of that moment. Um, and I think you could say the same thing about the, the Saru story possibly as well. But then it's interesting, you know, we were talking about Calypso and how much was crammed into that. And actually, uh recently, I've been watching a lot of um the Wallace and Gromit films, because my son's become obsessed with Wallace and Gromit. And those films, I mean, they did one feature length, but basically they're kind of half hour films. But the first time I watched one of them, and I hadn't seen one of them for years, I couldn't believe it was only half an hour long, because they're so densely written. You know, they've got so much plot in there. And so and also it's a lot of the comedy and a lot of the narrative is kind of visually driven as well. And the way they're edited and everything is actually very fast paced, even though they it sort of have this kind of gentle comedy combined with this kind of madcap thing, but the pacing of it is just so precise and carefully calibrated that they manage to fit so much in. And I, t- I take your point about the animated series. You know, yeah, maybe I'm picking it up a bit, saying it's 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 just Tos in in half the t- running time. But I suppose what I'm saying is at least in some episodes of the animated series, it feels like they're striving for that, or they're kind of, they're sort of aiming for that. You know, yes, they've got one eye to the kids watching on Saturday morning, but they've also got an eye to the kind of, the real Star Trek fans who, this is the only Star Trek potentially they're ever going to get ever again. And, and you know, they're trying to kind of capture something of that. And it does make me think, you know, is that partly about really stripping back, you know, say with dialogue, something like, you know, if you are trying to do something like Wallace or Gromit or whatever, where you're trying to tell quite a lot of plot in that short amount of time, it, it's really about like a kind of minimalism, in a sense, in terms of the style. And I suppose with the short tracks, they kind of varied uh in terms of how they how they kind of approach that. I mean, with the Saru episode you know, we've talked a little bit about how the pacing was much more gentle anyway. With Calypso, it felt much more that idea of kind of really trying to get through quite a lot by having these very short scenes where you you convey quite a lot as quickly as possible. You don't have a lot of kind of back and forth discussion. You kind of, you know, really cut the fat away somehow and use that as a way of getting as much in as possible.
1: Yeah, so it's about thinking about how you're writing a scene, isn't it? I mean, it's that no scene is wasted, each scene is serves a purpose. Each line serves a purpose. And I think when you've got a short amount of time to tell a story, you've got to be quite clever about that, haven't you, really? Whereas I felt a little bit like with some of the animated episodes, I felt a little bit like they were kind of wasting time a little bit. Right. <laughs> I mean, not so much yesteryear. <laughs> yesteryear, I think, mm. is one of the better ones. And that is like more of a Star Trek episode in a short space of time. Uh, so yeah, I think they did quite well with that. But yeah, it... If some of the other episodes, it seems, they seem to lag, even though they were told in a short period of time. They seem to lag in some scenes and then speed up in others. Um, but of course, obviously, they weren't making animated Star Trek for, People like me to analyse where they they were making it so that kids could watch it on a Saturday morning. They just
0: didn't plan ahead, you know. They didn't they didn't see us coming. <laughs> but I know I know what you I'm mean. The, right the thing that when you said about it lagging, what what's, came to mind for me was that extremely long scene uh, where Scotty is singing on the bridge. I can't remember which episode it is. Maybe the Lorelei signal and the, and there's Scotty just kind of singing his sort of drunken songs or something. And it seems to go on. It's almost like the Enterprise flyby and the motion picture seems to go on and on and on. This scene, it's, it's it, you know, it's probably only a like 30 seconds or something but it's at least 20 seconds longer than it needs to be but it's interesting because i suppose star trek has always had padding and in some ways one of the things that struck me about these short films is you know there's a potential one way of looking at them i saw larry nemachek tweeted when they first announced the saru backstory one He tweeted something along the lines of this would basically... This might have been a B-plot in a previous episode, or it might have been incorporated into a previous episode. And it's true. You could imagine an episode that was kind of... There was something going on in the present day and someone was having a sort of flashback to something that happened earlier in their life. I mean, for example, um, so for Bellana in Voyager, for example, there's the episode Lineage, which cuts back and forth between the story and the present day and her kind of remembering this formative experience in her life. So you could absolutely incorporate that Saru story as kind of flashbacks or as kind of B-plot or whatever. And in some ways, it made me start thinking a lot of these short films could almost be the B-plots of of previous Star Trek, or equally the B-plots of previous Star Trek could almost be short films. If you think about, say, those episodes of DS9 where there's a B-plot where Jake and Nog kind of get into a scrape and get out of it again, and it's kind of inconsequential, and it's really just it is basically padding. It is pillar filler is what they used to call it because Michael Pillar was so good at writing this kind of this character stuff that really didn't massively interact with the plot, but was one of the reasons that with next gen and then going forward into DS9 and so on, we came to love those characters so much was these kind of inconsequential moments about, you know, feeding Data's cat or, you you know, whatever it might be. And in some ways you could almost extract those B-plots and make them work as short films for themselves. And there are Star Trek episodes where, you know, the A plot is not very successful and therefore people don't go and watch that episode. But the B plot is what kind of saves it. And I always think it's kind of a shame because that means those B plots kind of get lost in a sense. Because in your rewatches, if you're not doing a kind of complete rewatch, you never go back to that episode. And you miss that, you know, those handful of really lovely scenes because they're kind of attached to an A plot that is is really kind of dragging the hole down.
1: Yeah, I think the problem with uh, some of the B plot stuff, though, is that, like you said, it is just filler. And if the uh, really good B plots are the ones that I think are very good at illustrating what, who, what a character is and who a character is. So, Data feeding his cat isn't necessarily a bad scene. But if it's written so that it's just filler, so that, you know, you can have those couple of extra minutes on screen filled with something because you can't think of what else to write in the, in their a plot, then I don't know. I just don't think that's really very entertaining. I think that if you're showing something about a data's character by showing him with his cat, then that's something different. And I think truly great television. Oh, and I would say the same with films is that some characters can be doing something quite mundane that doesn't necessarily fit the plot or the storyline. It doesn't further the plot doesn't further the story but it's saying something about the character. It's illustrating something about the character. And I think with the whole thing with Saru was that that short film illustrated something about him. It, it was explaining who he was, what his ambitions were, what his dreams were, what his relationship with his sister is. So now we know about his sister. So in the first episode of season two of Discovery, we understand where he's coming from when he's talking about his sister, that kind of thing. Whereas, and you know, the same with Runaway. Right in the beginning, and the first few like seconds of the of the short track they very clearly lay out what tilly's relationship is with her mother which explains tilly's character that that, i think that's clever writing whereas i did feel like the escape artist was filler and i felt like that because they weren't saying anything about harry mudd's character we already know what he's like from other episodes and what they're just doing is reinforcing that it's like one big in joke do you know what i mean
0: it's like a harry mudd's sketch or a harry mudd yeah exactly it's it's a uh, it is exactly all one big in joke which is one of the reasons i mean to be fair some people absolutely adored that some people that's their favorite short trek and i think that's one of the reasons that they loved it so much in some ways for me it's one of the reasons that it, it didn't work so much but i suppose there's this kind of question as well isn't there and this kind of ties into the question of you know we were saying for months why is netflix not showing these episodes what's going on presumably there's some legal wrangling going on they they weren't in the contract because no one knew they were going to exist or whatever and i you know i said several people look you know even though these ropey uh versions are online that you can barely see if they'd been selling them on itunes for a couple of quid i would probably have bought them all individually you you know if they put them out there they could have made some money out of it but anyway in the end we got them through netflix and one of the things i was sort of wondering is are they thinking because they dropped them like the week before season two of discovery Yes, partly that's kind of a tease for Discovery, but is it also this idea that somehow going into season two, we ought to have seen them? You know, are they kind of, because something like Saru's storyline, I think we are going to see his sister again later in the season. And is there this kind of sense, well, actually you are missing a part of the picture. And it kind of reminded me a little bit as well of the Discovery tie-in novels, which compared to previous Star Trek series have been written in consultation with the screenwriters. You know, you've got Kirsten Beyer, who's playing this role of kind of supervising the the novel writers as as well as her commitments to the actual show and I just finished reading Una McCormack's book about Tilly which is fantastic Uh, a really brilliant novel I really enjoyed it and it's very much about Tilly's relationship with her mother and it very much plays into that scene in Runaway Uh, and obviously the scene in Runaway sort of plays into our understanding of Tilly as a character and you sort of think well in the past the novels were these kind of extras that were you know, were not canonical. They were, they were technically, they never happened, if you know what I mean. Uh and, and, you know, maybe if they weren't contradicted on screen, then we can incorporate them. But basically, screen has priority and the novels are in this kind of nebulous area where they don't, almost don't really exist. They're kind of apocryphal. When you have something like that, where, you know, you've got this short track that's feeding into this information about Tilly's mother, then you've got this sort of officially sanctioned novel that's filling in this information about her relationship with her mother. There's this sort of, I don't know, there's this kind of interesting question because obviously the short treks are, you know, canon in in, in quote marks because they are being put out on screen. They are these kind of, um they are sort of part of Star Trek Discovery. But at the same time, you could say, are they a little bit like deleted scenes? You know, is something that happens in a deleted scene canon because, for example, in Nemesis, many people's favourite em- elements of that film are in the deleted scenes. You know, they're scenes that were written and shot and never made it to screen. And there's something about the short treks that I think, Because of how short they are and because they kind of feel like these little extras, these little treats, they, they almost do have some of the quality of the deleted scene in that they're this kind of, this little, this bonus content, I guess. You know, we didn't pay for them. We didn't kind of expect them. They're something we're being given, you know, almost as a kind of freebie.
1: I think they're also problematic in the sense that the way we watch television and the way television's written now is different than in the 60s when Star Trek first came out. So the original series, don't get me wrong, there are some episodes that are like two-parters, not that many though. And there are some, uh, I think, references in some of the later episodes of the original series, which may reference back to some earlier episodes. But it's mostly one one story per week, right? So one episode is a self-contained story. And actually, The Next Generation is very much like that. And then when you start getting into Deep Space Nine, you start getting into Voyager. Obviously, Voyager is one long, big story because they're trying to get home. And then, obviously, in Discovery, we've had it's very much like serialized television. Like we've got this mythic arc of a story there. So, you know, if you miss episodes from like three weeks ago, you might not know what's happening this week's episode because, like, well, how did Burnham do this, and what's happening with Pike here, and why is Saru got, I don't know, a different uniform or
0: something. So, you need a previously each week to kind of get you up to speed, and and for the new season, you definitely need that like last year on Discovery to get you up to speed, which we never really had to have so much with Star Trek before.
1: No, so the problem with that is that when you write a novel, it has to fit into that story arc or it's mm. discounted. You know, it's not ca- canonical. Whereas mm. with the original series novels, and I mean like the ones that were written like in the 70s and the 60s and the 80s, you know, like the ones that are normally out of print now, that sort of centre on Spock and Kirk and McCoy. And, you know, I think there's some that have been written about other characters like Uhura and Sulu and stuff. Those novels are whole episodes in themselves. So sometimes mm-hmm. it'll be a novel about a peace treaty. They go to a, you know, a planet and they're negotiating a peace treaty or something. And you can imagine that could be a whole episode in their five-year exploratory mission. So it's not mm. non-ca- non-canonical. Do you see what I'm saying? Non-canonical. Yes, absolutely. It's not. It's not. It doesn't. It's not something you can like. You you have to throw out because
0: it's not going to be it could, contradicted easily. Yeah. Yes, whereas, exactly. whereas
1: yeah. now. They've got an established storyline with Discovery. The writers are leading you through this long journey over the course of a season rather than what they were doing before was writing a mini-adventure each week. And I think that's harder to slip stuff in after, after, after after you've made it.
0: Yeah. And, and of course, also the Discovery novels are all basically flashbacks. I mean, they are all, you know, the, the Saru short trek is the closest to the Discovery novels. And it's interesting, you know, in the Saru novel, we didn't get the story of his life, uh, on Kaminar and how he came to join Starfleet and so on. What we got was a previous, I don't know what it was like. Five years before or something, we we got an, it was basically an episode of Star Trek Shenzhou, you know, the TV series that we never got to see where Saru was put in this difficult situation and he, you know, learned something about himself and, and grew as a person and so on. And it was very much like an episode of a TV series in which Saru was the main character you know, some years in the past. And with the Tilly novel, we go right back to when she was 16 years old and kind of how she came to join Starfleet in the first place. But they are always these stories filling in, they're filling in backstory. So, so none of them ever gets anywhere near the Battle of the Binary Stars and the actual TV show. They are basically all nothing but prequels, which is kind of interesting given that, you know, Star Trek Discovery is itself a prequel. It's, you know, there's this kind of obsessive idea of that, you know, the pre-TOS baked into that show. And we're seeing that even more, of course, with season two, you know, with Pike and number one and so on coming on board. And yet everything that kind of spins off from Discovery, I guess Calypso is is the real exception because Calypso is spinning off way, way into the future. Everything else is kind of spinning off slightly into the past, you know, in terms of all I mean so far, I know we've got this Giorgio series which is going to be kind of moving forward and so on. But all the kind of ancillary material is kind of more focused on the past. The novels are all more focused on the past. Um the Sarus you know short trek is, is going back to the past. Obviously that's not it's not true of all the short treks. I mean the the Tilly one it's slightly unclear to me when exactly that takes place because season two of Discovery seems to pick up right where season one left off. And I'm, I'm still, I mean, someone can probably fill us in on this in the Babel conference, but when does this kind of, I guess it only takes place over the course of one night or whatever, but she's just signed up to her the new training programme. Her mother makes this phone call. She meets Poe in the uh, mess hall. When is that in terms of the last episode of season one and the first episode of season two. Do you know what I mean? When, I when, when it was, does that, I thought it was before when season does it one. fit in? I thought it was before season one. It can't one. be before season one though, because yeah. she doesn't join the, it doesn't, she join that training program towards the end of season one. No. And, it's, and she's got her picture of her and Burnham. There's like best buddies on the, on her desk. I think it definitely is. appears to take place between the seasons. But it's when they still have
1: Black Alert, I think. It's when they still have. They're still doing stuff with the Spore Drive, so I assumed it was before they went into the Mirror Universe and everything. So I assume. I
0: don't think they're doing. They don't talk about the Spore Drive, do they?
1: Isn't there something right at the beginning about the short short track where she's. um, There's something. She's going to do something to do with. Because there's different shifts and stuff, aren't they doing something? I didn't think I didn't think it was at the end of season two because season one, I season one, sorry, because I don't, no. I didn't think they would have time for that.
0: <laughs> well, that's that's what sort of puzzles me about it. Is like when I mean I know it only takes place over the course of like or is, imagine or is uh, in, one evening, but even so, when does that evening fall? And maybe we'll you know we'll never know the answer to that, of course. But but I suppose there's this kind of interesting question with these short stories: when do they take place? Um And one of the things that struck me, you know, you were talking about the original series novels and how they might talk about, you know, they were the, I mean, if if, TA, if TOS showed us three years of the five-year mission, you've got these two extra years, maybe TAS showed us some of that. But so you've got these kind of extra years, you, you've you got these kind of lost eras. And the Star Trek novels, they often talked about these lost eras. Then you've got the potentially the second five-year mission. Uh Then you've got, I mean, in Discovery, they've said quite explicitly that Pike was on a five-year mission. I, I, did, I wasn't sure if that was ever canonically explained before so i guess spock presumably signed up for pike's five-year mission and then kirk's five-year mission and then you know whatever stuck around or didn't or whatever um but so i guess you, you so you've got all these kind of pockets where the novels can kind of go in and they can do picard on the stargazer or they can you know they can fill in these different gaps um not just kind of moving forward after the series are finished or doing kind of flashbacks to before they began it kind of raises this interesting question. One thing that people were clamouring for uh, before Discovery was announced was an anthology show for Star Trek because there was this real interest in shows like American Horror Story, which is kind of a different setup each season. And a lot of people really wanted the new Star Trek show to do something similar. So it might be one ship for one season and then it would be something else for the next season. And, you know, some of them might be back kind of, you know, TOS movies, kind of Monster Maroon that kind of era some of them might be jumping forward past voyager and we kind of be hopping all over the place and i was never massively convinced by that because i sort of thought well the problem with that is that then you never build up a relationship with these characters and you know you get them coming i mean you know we love characters like saru and tilly that's why they're getting this extra material because they're the characters that really resonate with the audience and you lose that with an anthology show at the same time the short treks do almost provide the possibility for an anthology show. And in fact, they are, you know, insofar as, you know, there are four of them. There's a, a season of short treks. It is an anthology show. You know, we've got one episode that takes place. I don't know when Saru left his planet. What, like 15, 20 years in the past, something. We've got one that takes place a thousand years in the future. They've sort of proven themselves as a formula that they can basically do star trek the anthology in a sense i mean i know these ones have all been linked to discovery but especially as they go forward and we know we're going to get some animated uh, short treks going into the future as well potentially they they could use this short trek form as a way of kind of doing this star trek anthology but just doing it in tiny pieces all throughout the whole kind of chronology of star trek
1: i mean there's plenty potential for that isn't there because obviously the Federation's vast um the galaxy's vast, you know, so there's many different species, many different people, years and years, and I talk about centuries worth of history that they could cover. I think the only danger with this is the sacrifice, like you said, of um, engagement with the characters. Uh, and I also think a sacrifice of character development. And I think if we take Suru for an example, I like Suru as a character. I'm quite invested in him as a character. And I would say I probably would still be, even if I hadn't read the novel about Saru. The novel does help though. And I think if you're just going to take it on the TV show, we've had a short track, which has been good. And we've had one episode which really focused on his character. And then we've had a lot of him in different scenes doing different things. And we had some conversations between him and Burnham, but not a huge amount of character development. And if you compared that to, for instance, to The Next Generation, which obviously ran for a lot longer so obviously, you know, we can't, necess- it's not really fair to compare seven seasons of Next Generation to two episodes of Discovery. I mean, two seasons of Discovery, sorry. But if you compare it to Deep Space Nine as well, we're missing, I think, some character development in Discovery. Because we're sacrificing some of that for the sake of a, like, long-term narrative, a plot that's continually ticking over. And I really felt that when the most recent episode that came out, Brother, I don't have spoilers for anyone that hasn't um, watched it. But I really hope they can, they sort of explore the relationship between Burnham and Spock more because it's very, it's drawn in very broad brushstrokes. And although a lot of people watch Star Trek for the narrative and and the fun of, of traveling through space and everything, you don't want to do that so much to the point where you start to sacrifice character development the motion picture is a prime example we had two new characters in the motion picture and you know as little about them at the end of the motion picture than you do at the beginning you know so there's a lot of like flying through space and shots of this and shots of that and people's reactions to things but not a huge amount of actual dialogue and i feel like that would be a problem with um lots of different star trek series uh, that were short and condensed you know like we're going to do like four episodes and we're going to tell the story of like three people in a you know on a planet and it's going to be really exciting i mean if it was four episodes of three people i don't know talking on a planet (laughs) like my dinner with andre but in space then maybe it would be character development but no one's going to do that (laughs) because i don't think that gets a wide audience except for someone like me but um so i do think with discovery i think they have taking the action a little bit too far and I have really enjoyed Discovery this isn't to say I won't watch it and I don't love it I love it I love it and more Star Trek is always good but it's it's also about the people and the characters it's not just about the themes and the ideas and the storylines
0: absolutely I mean and I would say I'm pretty confident that in this season of Discovery, we're going to get some more on the relationship between Burnham and Spock. I mean, I think that's kind of the, the promise of this season almost, is to work out what went wrong in that relationship. Uh, you know, we had with Lethe a bit of a kind of glimpse into what went wrong in that whole family dynamic with Sarek, but... It seems like, you know, even just in that episode, Brother, she's hinted at some dark secret between her and Spock, some kind of bad blood or whatever. But you're right in terms of the way that we learned about the rest of the crew because of this kind of very serialised form. You know, it is a different kind of form of storytelling. And it's it's absolutely different from if you think about, say, the first season of DS9. Quite schematically, that season basically did an episode on each character. So you had Emissary was all about Cisco. Then you had an episode about Kira. Then you had an episode about Odo. Then you had an episode literally called Dax. That was the title of the episode. And that was an episode all about Dax. And that was the kind of approach was... was you know, we we give each character a kind of introductory episode. And yeah, there's a plot. It's not just their backstory or whatever. But at the same time, that by making them the focus of that episode, we use that as a way to kind of really introduce the character in some detail. And obviously, you know, with Next Gen and Voyager and so on, you know, you get the Doctor episodes, you get the Seven and Nine episodes, you get the, you know, in some characters, their episodes tend to be good. Others, you notice someone like Beverly Crusher or or Geordie, you know, both characters who are great characters in their own way and work fine in the ensemble. And for some reason, when they try and give them their own character episodes, they usually end up with a pile of garbage. Uh, And you really feel for those actors because, you know, you think that they're like, finally, okay, you know, once a year I get my chance to really shine and be in the spotlight and this is my episode – and then, you know, it turns out to be Sub Rosa or, you know, whatever it is. So I guess we we haven't had that with with Discovery. We haven't had that kind of element. Although, interestingly, the Saru episode was the one that most people liked the least, I think, of that first season. And I can understand why. I think it didn't, partly because it didn't seem as kind of plot driven. It didn't seem as kind of dramatic. It didn't seem, it didn't have the kind of sort of adrenaline of the rest of that season it didn't really fit somehow. It didn't fit very well within that season, but it, it was very much that kind of, you know, more old-fashioned way of saying, let's do an episode on this character and, and try and get to know something about them. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, having done the short trek doing his backstory which i think they're going to assume everyone has seen when we do get another saru episode i'm assuming it's an episode when we do get to like meet his sister again and find out a bit more about his people and so on whether that's going to play slightly differently uh because obviously there is going to be we know that at some point there's going to be a storyline that is focusing on that character that's kind of going to be saru's story in season two uh but it's you know whether it will be one self-contained episode whether it will be a kind of plot strand that runs for a little while or what it'll be interesting to see how that plays out differently now that we've had the backstory we've had the kind of key piece of information explained to some extent although that short film was a little bit kind of um it didn't exactly fill in all the gaps we don't know all that much about the bowl or exactly what was going on or whatever, but we kind of know where he's come from now that we know that what do we get going forward in terms of understanding his character
1: I think that you can also make an episode fairly exciting or very exciting with a plot, an interesting plot, and also have character development. Like the episode in the first series of Discovery where it was with, with um, Harry Mudd, you know, the one where time kept repeating itself. We learned a fair Magic amount about the sanest
0: man go mad. Yeah,
1: we, made, we learned a fair amount about Michael and we learned a fair amount about Stamets, you know, and we mm, learned a fair amount about right, the characters and that was all very neatly written in with the plot. So you can do it. It's very good writing. And I would say that majority of Discovery is very good writing. But towards the end of season one, we were big, dra- dramatic, catastrophic things were happening. And characters were just sailing by them. And uh, you know, I mean, I'm referring to like, obviously, the death of Culber and stuff like that. Uh So it's nice, actually, in the beginning of season two to see that Stamets is actually affected by it, because I was like, this is a very strange sort of treatment of this kind of incident in the plot. So it's nice to see that they're actually sort of changing that in season two. And I suppose, you know, when in a crisis situation and um, you've got to further the plot along, characters might react differently and they may not have time to reflect on things. But those little scenes, like... Tilly and Burnham running in the corridors or people eating and talking to each other in the mess hall. They shouldn't just be seen as filler. They should also, if they're properly written, then they can illustrate a character's personality, their motivations, their beliefs, which makes you care about them more. Because if you don't really understand who a character is and they're very bro- like broadly drawn, then um, you don't care about them. And then you're not going to watch the show. <laughs> so...
0: <laughs> you're right absolutely they are i mean i mean when i talk about pillar filler you know it's not to disparage it i mean i think the pillar filler is one of the things that made next gen such a successful show and yes there was a kind of practical reason you know okay this script is three pages too short or whatever but at the same time not everyone can do Pillar Filler like Michael Pillar. I mean, you have to be a good writer to be able to make the most of that so that your filler is... It's not just filler. It's actually... It might be the highlight of the episode. It might be the the bit that actually people remember in 20 years' time because it kind of touched something. Or like you say, that moment between Burnham and Stamets in Magic to Make the Sanest Man, Man Go Mad, which is a kind of wacky, crazy, plot-driven episode, that is probably one of the strongest moments of the whole episode. It's quite a quiet moment. It's quite an intimate moment. It's quite a kind of open and vulnerable moment between the two of them where they really share something and that in itself is kind of is a real highlight of of this otherwise quite plot driven and quite kind of frenetic and quite kind of sort of comedic in a sense uh episode and of course yeah you can get you can get your characterization and i would say actually the writers on discovery i think the team of writers they've got are extremely talented i think they're very good you, you know compared to previous star treks and everything i think they do a very good job i feel personally with the first season of discovery the overall arc or arcs the overall sort of plotting of that season was maybe where they were let down a bit because sometimes it did feel a bit like it went off the rails and you weren't really sure what what exactly is this show about but within that i felt like the writers could actually on the kind of micro level Produce really good work and really believable characterization and really interesting ways of telling those stories sort of from scene to scene. They were writing really brilliant scenes, which I guess is one reason maybe that we do get the short tracks. Cause obviously that's what a short film shows in some ways is it's not so much about, can you do the whiz bangs of a kind of a roller coaster plot that's going to keep people on the edge of their seats week after week? It's kind of saying, okay, you've got a sheet of paper. Can you write something interesting on it? And in some ways, I think that almost a harder test in a way, because it's a different, it's a different skill, you know, being able to plot out an exciting season where there are twists and turns and yeah, suddenly the doctor's dead and then suddenly this is happening. Oh my God, we're in the mirror universe and Ash Tyler's really a Klingon and Lorca's really, you you know, a mirror counterpart and all these kind of, there were so many kind of big plot reveals and big plot points and the season seemed to be kind of, and then the Federation's about to be destroyed and, you know, all this stuff. And then here's section 31 showing up or are they, um, you know, right at the, in, in that kind of coda sort of scene, which in itself was effectively a short trek. There was that scene that they released with Michelle Yeoh, which wasn't part of the season. Um, but then what I think was the real strength of Discovery's writing was the writers who could kind of do the, the smaller stuff. You know, as Jane Austen described her books as engraving on a, piece of ivory it's like a tiny piece of ivory this idea that of like the writer who's interested in the kind of minutiae and can kind of do the detailed stuff um and i think it's a real asset to the show that they've got that team who who get that and who don't just kind of coast along and you know previous star treks there have certainly been episodes where yeah there's a good idea there but the script is a bit kind of nuts and bolts a bit sort of a to b and i think with discovery generally they they go a bit deeper than that they do something a bit more interesting
1: Yeah, and already there is changes in, like, the first episode. So, for instance, Tilly said, I never really understood why Tilly cared about Stamets. I kind of understood a little bit, but there wasn't a huge amount of them expressing their feelings, really, to each other in the sense of, like, I care about you. But when she sort of says, I don't want you to go, that's a really simple line. But it clearly tells the audience that she cares about Stamets. She wants him to stay on Discovery. Or when she when she went to say goodbye to Burnham when Burnham was going to go onto the asteroid and she sort of says something like, you know, tell me you're coming back and then she just says just lie to me. I mean stuff like that. Like just you could even just say it with a few lines of dialogue and then you you establish a connection a relationship between those two characters and you start to invest in that and you start to care about it more. And then they did it really well with Colburn and Stamets and I think they did it so well with Colburn and Stamets with even just like two very or three very small scenes that when they killed Kolber you were expecting more of a fallout. You were expecting more of a reaction. So I think that's why, you know, I think people were a little bit shocked by that. You know, like, if this, if this character's going to die, you've established this as a very, like, secure, long-term relationship, then there should be some sort of fallout of it. And the fact that there isn't means that people were starting to question why they killed him, that kind of thing.
0: And maybe part of the problem there is that they're almost a victim of their own plotting. So, you know, in the instance of, of Culber dying, it felt to me like that by, by the point that he died, we're sort of in like mega plot mode. We've got this kind of very heavily plot driven, heavily twisted twist-driven excursion in the mirror universe you know that's also when we get the whole reveal about ash tyler and so on um and we sort of talked about this before in our mental health episode i kind of feel like the twist with ash tyler they almost undermine themselves by having written his character so well beforehand if he'd been written more kind of schematically if he'd been written more like a, a, a bit of a cipher then it wouldn't have seemed like such a problem when it turned out that, no, he didn't have PTSD. He was just a Klingon in disguise. But they'd written him so convincingly and he was portrayed so convincingly as this guy who was really suffering, as this guy who was having a terrible time, as this guy who'd been through all this awful stuff, that that kind of worked against the plot reveal in some ways because they'd, they'd made him too believable. They'd kind of made the writing too psychologically credible. They'd made the performance too psychologically credible. Um, and all of those things were great at the time, but they were working against this kind of macro arc for the season which said okay this guy has to turn out to be a Klingon and kind of a villain and everything and I wonder whether the same thing was almost true with Culber that they managed with these very small things you know with the teeth brushing for example and with the kind of the little back and forth without any kind of grand gestures you know there wasn't this kind of big okay this is the gay relationship this is going to be this sort of big dramatic thing it was all about the small things and it was all about like like I said that kind of quiet moment in magic to make the sanest man go mad where Stamets is telling Burnham how they met and so on you know, they managed to build up this relationship that kind of felt quite real. And then as soon as he died, it's almost like there wasn't space for for the kind of real real reaction anymore because there was so much plot to be got through and it all had to be about the plot. So we got that one quite poignant scene where they were sort of talking in the mycelial network. But other than that, we kind of, we sort of had to just drop Culber because... Really, him dying was more about the kind of shock and the plot point. And he, he was really dying, not so much even... I mean, people talk about fridging. He wasn't really dying for the purposes of Stamat's character. He was dying for the purposes of Ash Tyler's character. He was dying because we wanted Ash to kill someone who would be shocked was killed who wasn't just a red shirt, basically i agree i think that was the failing of, of the latter half of discovery's first season that we didn't really get the fallout and it does seem like that's something that maybe they're looking to kind of course correct a little bit going into season two and you know we've got a new creative team on board for season two we've got um you know there there does seem to be a bit of a course correction i mean you, you know we've had so many different executive producers coming and going and so on on this show but it seems like they've they've got a bit more of an idea of what they're trying to do moving forward now and hopefully some of those areas will settle. And I mean, you know, look at Next Gen. I mean, the first two years of Next Gen were complete chaos. And then from season three, once you've got someone like Michael Pillar in, who's going to kind of steer the ship, the show starts to build to become what it really can be. And, you know, maybe that's maybe that's happening already with Discovery, remains to be seen, or maybe it will, you know, hopefully in the future. Um But just talking about these, to go back to these kind of short tracks and, and short films, one of the things that struck me, about these you know we talked a little bit about how short films are cheap typically you know you're not you're not hiring that many people there aren't that many guest actors or whatever they don't a lot of these are kind of bottle shows as well and and one of the other things that was interesting about the harry mudd episode was that rain wilson who plays harry mudd was allowed to direct it and this of course goes back to this kind of whole you know traditionally in star trek in you, you know in kind of 80s and 90s star trek they had this whole scheme where you know, not only could members of the public offer to write scripts for them, but members of the, the actors could become directors. So you have Robert Duncan McNeil and Roxanne Dawson and Livar Burton and of course, most successfully, Jonathan Frakes, who, you know, many of whom have now sort of parlayed that success into careers as TV directors, or in some cases, film directors. Uh, and Jonathan Frakes is directing the next episode of Discovery and has done several already. And is kind of a, a regular Trek director now. Um, but it kind of struck me, Thinking a little bit about, I mean, they, they haven't allowed any of the Discovery cast to direct an actual episode of Discovery. That's obviously considered a bit high risk because there's only, you know, what, a dozen or so of them. It's not like when it was Next Gen Voyager and they're churning out 26 a year and they can kind of afford to to risk that. But they will allow, you know, their guest actor, Rain Wilson, to have a go directing a short trek. It's a way to kind of to take a risk to do something a bit more experimental without it kind of threatening the cohesiveness of the whole or whatever and i think that's kind of interesting because star trek has always had those episodes that did something a bit off the wall or that did something a bit different Uh, and i've always quite liked it when star trek's done that and i think the danger with serialization becoming such a big part of star trek storytelling is that you don't get those kind of offbeat episodes but maybe with the short treks that's another way to kind of bring back that kind of quirky sort of slightly oddball quality that star trek has where it can do something that you know you're like, wow, where did they think of that, you know, and and kind of kind of do the slightly crazy stories, or or, or take risks.
1: I guess previous Star Trek had uh, more episodes to play with, so Discovery only has like twelve. So if they're going to tell a narrative story, they have to get it done in twelve episodes. Whereas with Next Generation or Deep Space Nine, you know, they have what like twenty two or something. So they can afford to have three or four be just like oddball episodes or whatever. I think that the best shows are the shows that mix. Uh, the two types of storytelling like say for instance The X-Files where you have a Monster of the Week episode but then you also have like mythology episodes which keep the sort of overarching story arc going on I think that something like TV series like The House of Cards which is just basically one long story, narrative story and you're watching one episode after another or indeed films say you're watching a trilogy of films then the middle film often is a little bit I mean not always, but it can often be a bit of a filler film and you can feel like, well, it was fun, but I probably wouldn't see this film on its own because I I would see it after it came after something and before the next film. There is also problems with telling a story over a long period of or several different episodes or several different films. But the problem with discovery is they don't have enough time to to to, to, to work, that it work with. They have only twelve episodes or whatever it is, 10 or 12 episodes. The problem is that um most television is becoming like that. And I wonder if that's because everybody's got shorter attention spans than they used to have back in the 90s. I don't know. I, I like the whole idea of 22 episodes. I'm like, give me more.
0: <laughs> no, I know. Well, like the kind of YouTube generation who, you know, who don't even watch TV, don't even watch Netflix. You know, they watch short things on i mean that's another aspect i suppose of the short treks is maybe they're the right length you know maybe star Trek's going to keep getting shorter i mean i talked about how well from from tos to next gen and that kind of chunk through to enterprise we were getting short you know clipping off a few minutes each every so often to get shorter episodes maybe we're going to find these you know these half hour lower decks episodes maybe we're going to find these um these these short tracks that are like 15 minutes are going to be more popular. I mean, you you pointed out how when the BBC did Bleak House and they made them half an hour instead of an hour each episode, that was a very popular move. People loved it. You know, people like the idea of this kind of bite-sized thing. And I do wonder whether we'll see, you know, if there is this sense that we're not going to take the risk of getting letting the actors loose kind of on the show itself, maybe if we do get more of these short tracks going forward and they do keep using them as a way to bridge the gaps between seasons and so on, you know, maybe we will see Doug Jones directing... Some kind of weird creature feature episode, you, you know, bringing all his talents to the to the role of director. Because you do get something when you get the actors directing. You know, sometimes they bring their own sort of special take on things do you know what i mean because they they do have a perspective that can be useful i mean or for example even with um trials and tribulations i think they the director for that episode was actually one of the kind of technical like visual sort of effects guys i think right who was directing it rather than one of the regular directors because they needed that kind of technical understanding in the director of that episode but it, it, it definitely strikes me as There's kind of potential there, and I think Rain Wilson did a good job. And I mean, certainly for me, you know, if I were one of them, I'd be less scared about directing a 15-minute short trek with a couple of actors than, you know, an episode of Star Trek Discovery. I mean, years ago, I directed a short film which was about it's only about 10 minutes long, and I'd been as as I mentioned, I'd acted in quite a lot of short films, so I sort of had kind of seen how they get put together from the kind of script through to the filming on the day and so on and, and the kind of things that were expected and so on but I was just astounded by how much work was involved in shooting a 10 minute film and this was literally it took place largely within 90% of the film took place within one room uh, of a group of people around a table basically it was this kind of meeting and then we, but then about 50% of the filming was devoted to a kind of intro sequence that I devised of this guy carrying a letter to this meeting. And we spent about a day and a half filming him walking down various corridors and, you know, stairs and getting out of lifts and all this stuff, which was extremely dramatic and much more exciting to shoot than these people sitting around the table discussing what it was actually about. But, you know, even just that stuff in the room, I mean, we filmed it all in one afternoon, I think. Uh but then, you know, the other thing that I hadn't really taken on board, having only acted in these films, is, you know, you, you you go and do a day or two and then never hear anything for six months. And you think, you know, why why are they taking so long to get this film put together? But the editing is such a huge job. Um And obviously, you know, if you've got a professional editor, they do a lot of the work. And, and you know, we were doing these things for free. So we were kind of doing them evenings and weekends and so on. So it, it drags on. But But, you know, the whole kind of performance and the number of people involved and the number of things involved and the amount of planning involved and the whole kind of paraphernalia of putting together even something very short and straightforward that you know someone would watch it and think oh that's nothing they probably did that in an afternoon is immense um and obviously you know when you come to an actual proper you know 45 minute tv show or so or whatever it's it's that much more and obviously with star trek if it's an ongoing thing you know a tv series is a bit different because you know you've got all the people are sort of hired already you've got all the kind of most of the sets are probably built already and so on but just the amount of work and the kind of learning curve involved in in doing that. It's amazing looking back and thinking about, you know, people like Jonathan Frakes or Patrick Stewart or Liv Alberton or whatever directing their first episode or Michael Dorn. That must have been quite a daunting prospect. And yes, they were kind of used to being in front of the camera, you know, day in, day out. But even so, making that transition is a difficult one. And it's, and it's I don't know, it's, it's a testament to something to do with Star Trek, I think, that they did it so successfully that they, you know, that a lot of those directors really did a really great job. And some of them have gone on to have careers as directors off the back of it.
1: So we spent a lot of time talking about the positive aspects of short tracks and deleted scenes and telling a a story in a very short space of time or telling a short story, but there are sort of negative aspects as well. I I would I d- I mean, I'm not sure if this is actually true, but I d- sort of sometimes do see a trend with our entertainment, both written and visual entertainment, towards condensing things and making them shorter and smaller. So like short films, short videos, shorter episodes of television, shorter runs of seasons of television, like we're just trying to squeeze a story into a smaller space. Or what we're trying to tell is a simpler story. And also as well, um, short fiction, like, uh, I mean, obviously a short story. It's been short stories around for years. <laughs> it's not short stories isn't necessarily a new idea. But like, a lot of the stuff that we read now on the Internet is short articles, you know, 500, flash 600 fiction, words.
0: Yeah, I would, I would. But flash fiction is a new thing. I don't think we had that a few years ago. The idea of these ultra short stories. So I think you're right. Things getting shorter and shorter it's mean, a phenomenon.
1: You have to question, where does that lead? I mean, does that lead to simpler stories being told? Does that lead to um, less depth in storytelling? Does that lead to less exploration of ideas and concepts? Does that lead to less complex ideas being understood? Does that lead to less good characters? Does that lead to more stereotype? And I, I don't know, I think that you know i mean just a film i saw recently which actually was a full-length film and was too long so this is a bad example but a film i saw recently was um, mary queen of scots and the idea was that this was supposed to be a proud strong woman and really the characterization was so poor that she really was just a strong powerful woman and i've heard people talk about chancellor laryl like She's a strong, powerful woman. But really, we don't know who Laurel is because there hasn't been much characterization because there wasn't time because Discovery is short. Like, the seasons are short and they had a story to tell. So I do think there is something sacrificed, I think, in terms of quality and depth of storytelling by te- by squeezing everything so it's shorter to fit the short attention span of today's audiences. And I sound so in other words, when I say that. <laughs> Sound like an intellectual snob. Well done, Clara. Well done.
0: <laughs> so, so, in other words, Clara... So, in other words, size does matter.
1: In terms of storytelling, I think it does, yeah. I mean, obviously, <laughs> it's it's an art to be able to tell a really good story in a short space of time. In a short story or in a short film, it's an art. I think it's quite mm. a complex, difficult art, to be honest. And I'm not saying the Short Treks didn't do this. I'm not saying the Discovery isn't doing this. But everything's so fast-paced now... You know, I mean, all you've got to do is watch the revival of the X-Files and compare it to the Mm X-Files shown in the nineties. And, uh, it's, it's like a completely different beast. So it's a similar thing with, I think with Star Trek, it's very fast paced, you know, like we want to be able to tell the story properly guys, you know, otherwise we're not really thinking and you want the audience to think otherwise what, what is Star Trek really for except to make people think, right? I mean, that's why it's different than other entertainment. That's why we're talking about it on a primitive culture podcast.
0: Well, I, yeah, I agree. Actually, I, yeah, I agree, actually. I, I think that pacing in Star Trek is important. And it's one of the things that differentiates Star Trek from some other properties. I mean, one of the, you know, I've mentioned before, I have a few issues with the Kelvin timeline films. I think one of the elements of those films is they're much faster paced compared to the older Star Trek films. And I feel like something like The Wrath of Khan, the way that it's paced is, is a big part of the success of that film and in a way if you try to like chop half an hour off it and make it this you know it's sort of do it at kelvin pace it would kind of lose something it would lose some of the kind of richness and the kind of humanity that it has arguably star trek nemesis you know if they'd even just included all the footage that they shot in that film and made it a longer film but certainly if they'd shot everything that was in the script and, and made it a longer film that way if it hadn't been film by an editor who basically who seemed to be keen to sort of streamline that film into kind of action you know we probably would have ended up with something different uh a lot better i would say but but also i think you get this with you know with tv i mean you get this with film to some extent because obviously a film you know the lord of the rings films they were like three hours each and when you went to the extended version they were like three and a half hours each or something you do get films that are like extremely long or conversely extremely short uh but particularly with tv i always think it's interesting because when tv is commissioned um you know and I, i've had some experience of this in terms of like books that i've done that have gone none of them have ever ended up on tv but i've been through some of the meetings and some of the discussions that go on and it and some of that is all about you know how many hours are you proposing because that dictates the budget and that sort of dictates everything you know are we proposing six hours or is one of them going to be a two-hour pilot or two hour not a pilot but a two-hour like opening episode and then it goes up to seven and what does that what are the implications for the budget and who's going to pay for that and who's going to think that's the right investment and so on and you do notice when you watch things on tv i mean what does it mean for example we've been watching recently les miserables on tv now everyone's familiar with the musical les miserables which condenses the plot of that vast enormous huge book into whatever like two and a half hours this version condenses it into six hours and it has much more room to breathe and it has much more you know i would say you know maybe it has a it has a very different shape to it not saying one is you know better or worse or whatever i quite like both of them but it's definitely got a different feel and but you know at some point someone made that decision and i don't know in this instance is it the writer or is it the the bbc who is it who's made the decision it's going to be six hour long episodes and not eight for example and obviously that dictates a lot about kind of what goes in, how much of that kind of character stuff goes in, how much has to be simplified or eliminated, uh, all those kind of decisions that are made purely on these kind of practical things about exactly how many minutes do you have um and how many episodes do you have. How many pages do you have when it comes to the script? And obviously, Star Trek, historically, they had this quite strict structure, you know, this kind of five-act structure. You've got this many minutes, and then you've got an ad break, this many minutes, another ad break. And that structure kind of dictated a lot of the shape of the episodes. And now a lot of that's changed because of the streaming model. But we still see, you know, kind of questions around TV Uh you know, even with that streaming model, I mean, say on Netflix, I've watched a lot of the the Marvel shows on Netflix, you know, um, Daredevil and Jessica Jones and so on. And they always seem to have this strange pacing where they can't seem to work out how to pace a season of whatever it is, 12 episodes. And the last chunk of the season, you, usually it takes like three or four episodes to really get the plot going. And you think this is very strange when you've only got that many episodes. And then it gets really good and really kind of plot heavy and really exciting for a while. And then often it sort of tapers off a bit towards the end. And you think, has someone just misjudged how many, do they actually only need eight episodes to tell this story? Because it's this kind of serialized story. It's, it's not a new story each week. Uh, but someone's told them to do 12 because it will sell better or, you, you know, sort of what's going on there. And obviously with Star Trek, we knew there was a reason they wanted all those series to hit seven seasons, to hit that number of episodes, you know, seven seasons of whatever, 25 episodes was the kind of sweet spot for syndication, for selling that series, for allowing it to endure. And, you know, that may be one reason why Star Trek has endured. And I think that was one reason with the original series as well, maybe why they got that third season is, yeah, there was that kind of fan campaign, but there was also this sort of idea of well, if we accumulate enough episodes, maybe we can kind of sell them on. And with Next Gen, this, I think, is the reason that Patrick Stewart was always saying, well, I'm not unpacking my suitcase because I don't expect this job to last long. There was this idea that, oh, we only got three seasons out of the original series, but if we can get a couple of seasons out of this new spin-off that probably isn't going to be very good, then we've got enough that we can package and we can sell it in a certain way. And obviously the mechanics are very different, you know, 50 years later or, 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 you know, 30 years later or whatever in terms of what what is packaged to a channel or to a network or whatever and what they want and what you sell them and what you throw into the bundle. And these short treks are kind of an interesting element of that because on the one level, they're part of this kind of corporate money-making machine. They're all about not cancelling the subscription and so on. On the other hand, they're not limited by any of those factors. They they can kind of do whatever they like. The only real responsibility is that they put one out every month to bridge that gap.
1: Yeah. And I suppose a part of the marketing decision is how are you going to market this to the audience, how the audience is going to watch it? And it's awfully hard to binge watch on Netflix 22 episodes in a row. Whereas I'm not saying people would binge watch 12 in a oh, row it can either. Oh, but, but, you know, I mean, our first series of House of Cards was released all at once. And I remember it was a big deal mm. about that. You know, like Netflix releases this whole season of television all at once. Oh my God. And I do remember that I think I must have watched about four or five in a row. And that's like four or five hours like, of my time. take the
0: day off work, basically. Yeah, I yeah. mean,
1: well... There's a very funny, um, skit on, t- on TV. I think it's on the television show Portlandia where there's this couple watching Battlestar Galactica and, you know, mm-hmm. they're like, Oh, let's just watch another one. Let's just watch another one. And eventually they like, they don't go out to a party. They're supposed to go to, then they don't go to work and they lose their jobs. And then basically yeah. they lose the house and they stop eating and they basically become <laughs> skeletons sitting on the sofa because they have to watch the next episode of Bustard Galactica because they're like binge watching until they die. So yeah, that's the way that people watch television now or a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, so maybe that's why, why they're selling shorter series to, you know, to sort of streaming sites and stuff rather than make 22 episodes. I, I guess, I, th- I guess, but I think part of it is I don't think they think they're going to sustain an audience for 22. Episodes. I don't think they think they're going to sustain an audience mm-hmm. for an hour without some sort of action. And I think that's selling the audience short, because, yeah, we all have shorter attention spans, but, you know, the audience is also open to intelligent entertainment. And there I go, sounding like an intellectual snob again. But Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, you're certainly not going to lose your house from uh binging all four episodes of Short Trek no. season one, I suppose, you know, there's, there's, there's safety in that. But it's been fun talking about this. But I feel like for an episode about short forms, we've probably gone on long enough. So maybe we'll leave the conversation here. But we'd love to hear any of your thoughts uh on the Babel conference, if anyone's got any thoughts about how these Short Treks worked out, how they met your expectations or didn't um, and what your feeling was about them as a whole. But um, talking about short treks is not the only thing we've been doing on TrekFM this week. So here's a listen at what else you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, the ready room. I just wonder, like, I, I think this is sort of a delicate focus area mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. a series, a section mm-hmm. 31. I think it will be very easy to make an interesting TV show that strays too far away from what Star Trek is at its core, unless it's handled carefully, and so I'm going to be interested to see what they do with it. And I'm kind of wait and see. That can be a dynamic tension. You could have two different characters mm-hmm. or two different factions that represent that spectrum. Earl Grey. But yeah, it's it's a, it's it is kind of a very Kirk
1: thing. Like I'm I'm gonna you know, save the day this way, yeah. Yeah, I love that. It's a great moment because the twist, you just don't see it at all. And here Riker comes and is like, Nope, I'm not, and then bam, bang, bang, and poo-poo. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I think the first time I saw it, I was like, Oh no, if Riker's infected, how are they gonna get up? Oh, wait a minute. Yeah,
1: yeah, right yep. and just right to the very end. It was great
0: timing mm-hmm. on that. Yeah. The orb the way that you live your life is a routine and a pattern and almost an addiction because it becomes just what you do and to break out of that takes immense work and and therefore you you usually when you're going to make a change like that you need some sort of safety net and Burrell hasn't been in a place where he feels that long enough even though Kira is kind of offering that to him
1: The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery Podcast Pike's answer was a little, well, I owe you a simile. Like, oh, come on, dude. Uh, but but when he talks to Connolly, he's like, do you see how many syllables died? Like, that was great. <laughs> that was so funny. Oh, my gosh. That was so amazing. I'm being a bit contradictory right here because I like Pike for the reasons I don't like Tilly. Right? but. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published.
0: And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link.
1: We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L,
0: into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM.
1: Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara on Twitter at Clara Jean
0: MC If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash TrekFM. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details.
1: Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm.
0: We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show, and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at at AJBlackWriter, and online, hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from The X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at at MissAmyNelson.
1: You're blended, alright.